Welcome to Life List, a birding podcast. Hello and welcome, everybody. We are back with another episode of Life List, a birding podcast. My name is George Armistead, and I am here with both Molly Brown and Alvaro Jaramillo. How are you guys doing today? Hey, how are you? Hey. Gonna stay awake for this podcast. We were just saying, I think we're all a little jet lagged now. So, <laughs> oh my gosh, yes, yes, yeah, we've all been traveling, which is kind of nice. I mean, when we started this podcast, we were not traveling at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep, yeah, look at us now, <laughs> jet setting too much. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good problem to have, isn't it? Yeah, yeah I think, is. you know, we should uh, warn people that we're going to be talking about three hours now because we have so much to say. <laughs> I don't know if I'll stay our... awake for the next three hours. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. We'll, we'll keep it to the normal length. All right. You convinced <laughs> me. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Well, it has been good to be on the road, I think, for all of us. Uh, you guys talked a little bit about some of what you had coming up in the last episode, which was fun. I listened to that on my flight home from India, which we'll talk about that trip too. I'll start out uh, with you, Alvaro. What have you been up to, man? Well, uh, you know, I'll talk to you in a bit about my recent trip to Cuba, but like I've been here a few days and this is a really, like at home, um, kind of a cool time of year to look at the backyard. Um, You know, I have the winter feeders going the whole time and there's house finches and, you know, goldfinches and the sparrows, which my main sparrows are white crowned and golden crowned in the winter, you know, here in the backyard and house sparrow um, and fox every so often. But this time of year, like all of the golden crowned sparrows basically in a two week, three week period, just go boom, you know, and they get their head colors, the, the classic breeding head color. And it's such a striking bird to see for, and you know, just the moment that they're all looking super good they leave, you know, and it's sort of a, a crescendo of the winter, you know, to see the the golden crown sparrows and they start, um, they just look so good. And um, well, you know, the goldfinches are bright yellow now and the, it's, it's kind of a fun thing to watch after seeing the same birds all winter, they said, suddenly go colorful on you. So it's, uh, yeah, I've been enjoying that and the hummingbirds, you know, there's Alan's hummingbirds here and stuff. So. The Anna's displaying? Cool. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're Anna's. Um, you know, I don't have the males uh, displaying in the – they winter here, but once the display time comes, they go somewhere else. And then I just have females that probably breed here in the yard somewhere. I found the nests in the past, but it, like their display areas are very specific. So they – you can almost – they're almost like a lecking species. Same with mm-hmm. the Allens. Like I don't get – displaying males here but i know exactly where to go and see them like not too far away yet pretty pretty dramatic display when they're doing it i think a lot of folks don't necessarily think of hummingbirds in when it comes to cool displays lacking behavior you know especially those of us in the east we see ruby throats and you know it's it's Mm -hmm. not quite the same as you have it out there i remember a few years ago when i was visiting you and brian sullivan seeing anna's displaying like crazy and it really knocked my socks off yeah, they do these dives um, with a snap kind of sound at the the bottom of the dive, which um, there's a lot of, you know, early on people were like, what is that sound? Is that vocal or is it mechanical? And it turns out it's mechanical, right? They make it with 
with their feathers on that dive. You can download, there's some, there's, there's a video, a slow-mo video that shows how it happens, but it's pretty cool. Is that the one they did like in the wind tube or whatever it was? I think so. Yeah. 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 There was a guy at, at Yale, um, I think it was Daniel Field, who was cataloging all mechanical sounds of birds, you know, from, you know, rough grouse to Anna's hummingbird to, you know, bill clapping, wing clapping, you know, all sorts of, uh, it's not something people think about a whole lot or not, you know, the sounds that are not produced by the syrinx, but produced um, mechanically is yeah. a pretty cool thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's... um. And all of these flycatchers that have primary feathers that are, you know, attenuated, kind of spiky, they probably all use them to make a sound. Um, like male kingbirds. Yeah. Yet, often it's not documented. So, you know, you just sort of see that the birds have these feathers, sometimes really crazy looking feathers in some of the flycatchers in Latin America. And I I noticed on these really great photos of uh, parakeets few weeks ago that were up on online that some of the par- South American parakeets have these funny primaries as well. Like, so they're mm. doing something. So yeah, I think, you know, <laughs> man, it's, it's pretty cool. That is cool. Nice. Nice. Molly Brown. What have you been up to? Yeah. I don't have much of a report from my backyard because, uh, I just got you back, been there? but yeah, I haven't <laughs> been here. But uh, yeah, so I talked about this on the last episode a little bit, but I took off to Central America, spent uh, just a few days in El Salvador, and then went to Costa Rica and down to the Osa Peninsula for a little while. Mm. Um, That was my first time down there, and that was fun. All of it was fun. Uh, Came back and have been running around a little bit for meetings and some work trips, and uh, just got back from a week-long meeting with about 40 people that I'm working with out of D.C. and Nova Scotia on this carbon sequestration program. A couple weeks ago, they said, uh, we want to all get together. Where can we get 40 hotel rooms for a week? And I thought, I bet you can find some in West Virginia. <laughs> so they all came out. They're all out wow. in the mountains. We were uh, like looking at habitat management programs. And then I had also... like. I, a bunch of the first rounds of migrants were coming through too. And we were outside the whole time. So it was really fun to get to show people a lot of birds. And I I was excited just about seeing them and (laughs) just seeing activity pick up. So uh, I just got back from that and ready to uh, start enjoying the backyard a little bit more. Oh, it's starting to go. Yeah. I, I actually, I got back yesterday and, um, you know, kind of rested, managed to sleep through the night, felt thankful for that, but mm-hmm. actually got out today and did some, did like a nice half day hike around Kristen and I took the dog and did a loop around the Heinz Refuge. And yeah, I was noticing the same thing that, um, you know, here in, in the East spring is really starting to pop. When I left on the 14th of March, old man winter still had his icy grip on uh, the region and uh man it's a it's a different story now cherries are blooming and you know some a few warblers are starting to move and and uh, mm-hmm. yeah really something so you had these 40 folks come in um were you kind of in charge of hosting or just kind of helped set up the uh the lodging and so forth 
Yeah, I did did a little bit of it. So I worked really closely with all of them. And I set up lodging at one of the state parks in the mountains in Canaan Valley here. Um, and then it was sort of just like a, a team bonding retreat kind of thing, too. Um, and then meeting with landowners and going out and seeing people and seeing different habitats in the area. So I had a lot of say in that. And it's it, really fantastic in that part of the state and in the mountains tons of public access it's all like national wildlife refuge and national forest and state parks and wildlife management and that kind of thing um a couple a lot of unique plants to see um some unique trees there's a uh i think it's just a subspecies but a, a balsam uh subspecies that's just there in the valley and things like that so just having people come geek out over that and then also like showing them louisiana water thrushes that Mm. it just got back and and that kind of thing too um yeah it was it was so much fun it was just great to get them all out there you know the the point you made about public access this is a really really like cool thing you don't we don't think about it we're often thinking about birds right where we want to go to a place that's got a bunch of birds like texas but texas has very little public access. Like I, I was always surprised at how few places you can visit in Texas that are you can just roam around. And uh, maybe we should have like a, you know, a more of a view of going to places where we can just roam around and look at different places and public trails. And and there are some states, some regions that are really good at that, and other mm-hmm. places that are not. And, uh, I mean, as birders, we we should be taking that into consideration because it's so much more fun to be able to just visit places, you know, random places sometimes, you know. So, yeah, yeah, that's cool. Yeah. It's funny you say that because, uh, you know, like I said, I was in El Salvador and checking that out and there were a lot of parks and everything. And um, I was was totally surprised about how much there was to to do and see there. Um, And I can talk more about that later. But then went to Costa Rica and I haven't been there since I was 16. That was my first international trip more than a decade ago. Um, and so now I just came back and I rented a car and I was driving around and I was with friends from there and who know the area really well. And it just totally amazed me that you can go anywhere. (laughs) Like you can get anywhere in Costa Rica and just the attitude that landowners have. Mm -hmm. Um, and then what's also public and like, you just have to know where to go to end up, you know, wherever off the beaten path or on the beaten path or wherever you want to be. And then coming back to West Virginia, particularly that part of the state, I think public access is actually a a pretty big problem in a a lot of the state here. But in that part of the state, I I was thinking it's kind of the same thing. If you go up any road, you're going to end up on some trail system that you can access. And if you know it well enough and if you study enough maps or spend enough time there, you can kind of figure out where some unique places and hidden gems are and that kind of thing too. Um, I felt like there were a lot of similarities there. Hmm. That's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. You you really sort of kudos to the places that do have a lot of public access. I'm lucky here, you know, in the San Francisco Bay area, we have a lot of public access spots, especially the higher, you know, sort of hilltops, mountains, ridges. And, uh, and it's in an area that has really expensive land. So, um, we feel lucky that it just wasn't all developed, you know, and, and it, it's mm-hmm. not lucky. People actually made it happen, right? There's people who planned this this future that we're living today, which is great. Um, yeah, but some other spots, you know, it's really hard. 
Um, and yeah. as a birder, you notice it so much. You're like, well, you can't go there. Or you can't go there. Or you can't go there. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, in most parts of the state here, I feel pretty weird, like pulling off the road and standing out there with my binoculars. I'm usually kind of nervous. Costa Rica, that was not the case. We were, you know, just pulling off wherever. And it's just a completely different attitude. So then it's also it's the public land access and what the the private landowners attitude and perceptions on who's welcome and who's not and what's okay and and all of that too that it shapes a big role and it's really nice to be out birding and not worried about that yeah it's like those places in england you know that have the you know public trail system through like people's farms mm-hmm. and stuff and and i remember asking somebody like how does this work you know how does the private property whatever and they were like Dude, these trails were here before property existed as a concept. You know, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, these are pretty old trails, right? Yep. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I wish we had a little bit more of that um, kind of attitude. You know, where we're not always uh, afraid of other people. That you know, people might actually come to the land to enjoy it rather than mm-hmm. mess with it. Right? It's sort of what the uh, North American kind of thought process is like. They're here because they want my land or, or whatever, you know. Do you like my accent there? My yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> it's strong, man. Yeah, I know. I could do yeah. a, Can- a Canadian one, but I'm not going to do it now. Yeah, that's yeah. We'll save that for some for another another time. time. Yeah, when we have a Canadian topic. <laughs> yeah. Well, Costa Rica is one place I'm eager to get back to. And I think something like 30% of the land is protected in national parks and reserves. It's crazy. And the culture there is built for birding. Um, it's just they've always kind of I – I think of them as kind of the granddaddy uh, of ecotourism. You know, it's just like mm-hmm. it's it's weaved into the fabric of society there. And, boy, it would be nice to uh, to have that – see that around at a, at a few more spots. Um so that's pretty cool. Yeah. 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 Well, but um, India that is good stuff. I uh, definitely want to hear more about uh, about these travels. I'm sure everybody else will too. Yeah. I just returned from 25 days uh, of traveling. Wow. Um, it was a long one. Uh, it was good. Kind of had two two sections to it. The first part was me and Kristen. Um, in India, going to um, sort of the central plains, flying into Delhi. And um, we went, we spent an afternoon in Delhi, went into the spice market area in Old Delhi, which is pretty wild. If anybody ever does that, I highly recommend getting a rickshaw ride around town. It's sensory overload, just like people everywhere. You know, it's just, it's really, it's kind of a shock to the senses. Um, one of the one of the cool things there was we went into the main trading area, storing area of red chilies, uh, red chili peppers, oh. and you just see these huge sacks full of red chilies everywhere. And as you start to walk through, like your eyes start to water, and like you know we were wearing masks because of you know people are still being kind of careful in places there, um, even though they've kind of they've they've actually. Uh, uh, removed the mass mandate much of India now um, mm. there you wanted it because the chilies in the air were so strong that it started to make you like cough or sneeze and your eyes water it was like pretty overpowering um, but it's like the 
the hub of uh, red chili trading right there. It's pretty impressive to see that. And then just see all the spices and everything uh, right by the red fort there. That was pretty cool. That was on arrival. And uh, yeah, we did some birding around Delhi. Uh, we did went to see the Taj Mahal, went to Bharatpur, which is a famous, famous wetland birding area, former hunting ground of the Maharajas way back in the day. And, um, you know, lots of good stuff there. And then we did like a week long loop kind of of four different national parks in central India, primary, primarily focusing on trying to see tigers. And I'm happy to say we were pretty successful with that. Um, <clears throat> following that, we went back to Delhi and uh, Kristen had to head home, do some work. She had to get back to work. They were uh, limited time off for these nurses, you know. Um, so she had to get back. I continued on uh, with some mutual friend of ours and, and some other folks I'd not met before went up high to the high, high Himalayas in the northern state of Ladakh uh, to search for snow leopards. And that was quite a challenging week in many respects. It is an amazing place, an amazing landscape. Um, you ever want to be in a landscape where you really feel small, you go up there and these huge this huge range of the Himalayas, you know, you're not that far from K2 in Pakistan. And then off to your east there is China and, you know, the edge of the Tibetan plateau. Uh, and man, uh, that is a landscape like nothing I've ever seen before. We spent six nights at almost 14,000 feet, high elevation, thin air, incredibly dry, incredibly dry. It's, it's, it's technically a desert. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it was, it was pretty intense. Uh, and we did have some luck with the snow leopards. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was a heck of a, heck of a trip. Um, all told like I mentioned, I just got back yesterday, still experiencing a little fatigue and jet lag. Um, but you know, we saw eight tigers. We saw two snow leopards, saw a leopard. Um, you know, regular old leopard, which is actually arguably my favorite cat, uh, and Whoa. a whole mess of birds. So, man, it was it was something else. It was a, it was a heck of a trip. Wow. So, do people like? Does anybody ever call them the Himalayas? I've, yes, I've, mostly they do there. Yes, the Himalayas. Yeah, yeah. the Himalayas. I, I've never known like what's you know right or wrong, or if it's like one of those things you can pronounce both ways, or it's like American versus British. You know, I think but, uh, Himalayas I feel is weird pretty. Yeah, Himalayas. You know, it's like hello, Himalayas. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely feel like Himalayas is an American thing. Um, right. I don't, I'm, I may, I, I stand to be corrected about this, but that is like, I feel like you only hear Americans say Himalayas. Right. Right. Yeah. Just like British people are the only people that say Nicaragua. <laughs> <laughs> Nicaragua. You mean yeah. Nicaragua? <laughs> yeah. Hey, you know, uh, speaking of the, like the, I want to hear more about the snow leopards, but I, I, I don't know if you've seen this um, movie called 14 Peaks. No. Um, about this guy, um, this Nepalese climber, um, Nimsdai Purja, I think is his name, mm -hmm. Nims. And he 
goes and tries to do the impossible and climb essentially the 14 uh, peaks that are above what, I forget how many meters, but it's the 14 highest mountains all in one year. And uh, it's it's a pretty uplifting, cool story. And the, the, the team is all Nepalese. You know, they, they, they kind of, you know, they, in a sense, there's a backstory of like, you know, the Sherpas are always there, right. In all of these climbs, but they never get like sort of the full billing, you know, and it's like this time it's like, it's just Nepalese people doing all this. And, uh, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's a really, I think it's called like nothing's impossible is the other name, like sort of the subtitle of the film. It's really good. And it's beautiful scenery places. And you're like, wow you know and and um i think he's the one that took that that famous photo of like hundreds of people like lined up to go to everest you know like right at the Mm -hmm. peak he was he was sort of coming down as all that was happening so it's a good movie yeah that's a great wreck i'll definitely check that out yeah yeah Yeah, the landscape is nuts i mean every now and then you you know you'd you'd walk away from the group and then a little ways and you you know you got to walk slow up there 14,000 feet it's it's one thing to go up there for a day but we were there for six nights at that elevation um and you do get better as time goes on like the first day or so we really just acclimated in the town of Le which is where you fly in it's actually a big military town given you know strategically um it makes sense given where it is kind of wedged between Pakistan and China and, you know, close to this Kashmir region, uh, which has been disputed for, for decades now. Uh, in spite of that, if, you know, it's, it's kind of like stably unstable, if you will, it's kind of been this way for so long that everybody's just kind of used to it. And there was, um, you know, a lot of tourists move through there, particularly actually in June, uh, for trekking, very few birders go up to Ladakh, um, really very few, more and more go for snow leopards. Um, But we were kind of talking about this just before we started recording how, you know, 10 years ago, almost nobody saw snow leopard. Uh, It was something that just, I mean, they still call it the gray ghost. It's, it's a, you know, it's sort of a phantom of an animal. Um, And it's not easy to see even now, but these trips are getting them, you know, if you spend six six nights or so, your chances of seeing one or two cats are pretty high. Uh, it's it'd be rare to spend that amount of time and not see one at all. The typical experience is that they are, you know, not close. Um, many of the people there are using 600, 800 millimeter lenses to try to get some kind of imagery of these cats because they, you know, like we're talking about, this landscape is huge. You're looking very often dawn and dusk at the these ridge tops hoping to see something moving along the ridge and uh and so it's it's still hard but sightings are uh, if not routine very regular now uh we yeah. saw two the first of which was uh deeply satisfying i will say was really nice. Uh, it was not close. It was probably about a kilometer or so distant, but we had scopes um, and we got to watch it for over an hour. And, you know, it was when we first got to it, our guide, Gulzar Hussein, is an amazing guy, uh, Ladaki. He's been, his 
family's been there for 10 generations. Um, and he's done a lot of studies on the, uh, the culture and history of the place. And he's doing a lot of recording of oral history of the nomadic, uh, people that live there, which is a lifestyle, which you can imagine is kind of on the way out at this point. So there's much to preserve in terms of the oral tradition, but we get there to this site. We heard that there was a snow leopard. We get there and we see this thing that looks like a rock. And, you know, I'm there, uh, Doug Gotchfeld was my roommate, uh, Dave Stasekel was there with his wife, Julie. Um, and, uh, and we're looking at each other we're like, that's a snow leopard. Really? And Gulzar's like, you guys, you're not going to believe me. You just got to wait for the thing to stand up or move. Cause it just looked like a square rock, you know, and it's kind of backlit too, which didn't help matters. Finally, you know, we're watching it for maybe 10, 15 minutes and the thing lifts its head up and you're like, Oh, and you realize it's actually closer than you realize. And then you can start to see the pattern, you know, this gray cat with some darker spots and it just kind of stretched a little and looked around and then it put its head back down, slept for another 10 minutes or so. And then it's, and then it's put its head up, started yawning. And that was a good sign. Our other local guide, Nurbu was like, it's yawning. It's yawning a lot. This means it's going to get going. And then before you know it, it's licking its paws, it's licking its hind, you know, it's lifting its hind leg and, you know, grooming tender areas and, uh, you know, kind of doing stretching. Things. It, it was doing <laughs> cat things, man. It was doing cat things. It was it, like, it reminded me of our cat Luna, who's just like, she naps <laughs> like, you know, 17 hours a day. And, you know, but when she gets up, she kind of takes her time and stretches and cleans herself. And, you know, she doesn't just kind of roll out of bed and go, you know, she, she, uh, she, she's very fastidious and takes care of herself. And the snow leopard was quite the same way. And finally, you know, it starts to stand up, stretch, starts spraying different rocks. And, uh, and then we watched it kind of like, you know, snake down this hill. And at times it was trotting. And at other times it was just kind of ambling around. You could really see the power of the shoulders and the crazy, crazy long tail these things have, you know. And eventually we watched it kind of curl up um, behind one of these big red pin cushion uh, plants. And uh, and it, when it did that, it like it was, you know, if you didn't know it was there, it just vanished in front of you. Uh, and eventually this, the sun was getting lower and lower. We had to bolt, but we watched it for probably close to an hour and a half and then, uh, and moved on. We had one other the next day. Uh, mind you, this was day five that we found our snow leopard. We'd had four days of looking around and not seeing any cats. Uh, and that was, that was tough. <laughs> yeah. Are So were you like at your lodge and like scanning from there? Are you out on trails what what is the looking entail yeah so good question so basically we're we had our lodge we're at this place called the snow leopard lodge where we stayed and right. there you we have three different vantage points from which we scan um and and so there's three there but then and we look out on kind of a couple different valleys there um and all so kind of all around you is good snow leopard territory. They frequently see snow leopard from right there. Um, but then uh, we also had spotters out, local Ladakis who had been trained to spot and track snow leopards in all the other valleys around there. Maybe not all, but a bunch of them. And, uh, you know, and they, they knew, for instance, that in the valley we were in, that there had been uh, seven different snow leopards in the last few weeks that had come through there. Um, 
you know, these things keep big territories, I want to say like 40, 50 square miles uh, often. And so they find tracks, they find uh, scent spray. Sometimes they move more at night. Very frequently, they do not move in the middle of the day. Um, so mostly we were, our mornings and evenings were right near our lodging there. And we would take one of the three different spots. The other thing that's crazy is the climate there. Um, we had mornings, uh, where, uh, Dave had a thermometer and it would say it was 15 degrees in the morning. I mean, it's cold, cold and dry. And then, you know, three in the afternoon, we're looking at a snow leopard one day and it's 75 degrees. That morning, it was 15 degrees. You're talking about a 60 degree Fahrenheit swing in temperatures. You're in the morning, you're worried about frostbite. And then you're so high up in the afternoon, you're actually worried about sunburn. Um, and it's just, it's a, it's incredibly dry climate, uh, pretty hard on the sinuses for some folks. Um, so yeah, we, we would spend a lot of time scoping from right around one of those three vantage points. And then we would get calls or about tracks someplace or even a snow leopard sighting itself. And we'd go to other valleys, you know, kind of trying to track these tracks, you know, put ourselves in a good position to spot an animal on the move. And after, you know, four full days of not seeing much, we were really starting to feel the pressure. Um, but thankfully day five, we had beautiful sightings day six. We had this, uh, this other one that we saw, we actually tried to hike up closer to it. It was a crazy hike. We gained like mm. about half the group tried it. The other half, you know, just said, I'm not even going to bother doing that. Cause it was pretty much straight uphill. And, uh, we got, a, I, I, I was like, I'm going to try. I was like, I might slow you guys down. So just you guys go, if I make it great, if not, you know, tell my relatives and my wife that I loved her. And, uh, you know, so, so I, I head up, you know, we, we head up and, and eventually we, we worked into a position where we could see the snow leopard, but it actually wasn't much better than where we started. Um, but, uh, that ended up being an animal with two cubs. Um, from where I was, I could, I was not able to see the two youngsters, which were, I think about eight months. So they were pretty big. Um, but others were actually able to see this female trotting along with two youngsters as well. I was just able to see the female sitting on a rock. Uh, so that was pretty intense. Um, you know, there's, there's, I wasn't sure in my life, I, I kind of had resigned, you know, I like cats. One of the things I really want to do at Hillstar Nature is some birding and big cats trips. And, um, you know, this trip I saw three cats, it's something I'm eager to do again. Snow leopard was not something I ever thought I would really have a chance to see. So to be able to watch one at length and then see another pretty well also was definitely, uh, you know, really a dream come true. Cool. I'm I'm thinking of doing tours with weird rodents, you know, like <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if there's a market for that, you know, oh, capybaras and viscachas and yeah, exactly. all those things we've talked about in the past. Tuka tucos, you know? yeah. Tuka you know, like <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, pacas. Yeah. We talked but, about our know, squirrel people, tour, but you know, maybe uh, <laughs> you know, maybe people you're onto something now. The ideas flow. In, in this podcast, like you wouldn't believe, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I, yeah. we were pondering too, like now that the snow leopard, oh God, I don't want to say you, you just described something that's really hard. Like this, this is hard, but it's easier to see them than it was 10 years ago that now maybe the cat that is 
one of the hardest is the Andean cat, which is a small cat up in actually a broad part of the Southern Andes. You know, um, I, I actually saw a photograph somebody took of of one just above Santiago, like uh, where the place where he took this photograph, you could see the city of Santiago. Below. Oh, wow. Is it a camera is, trap or it's a camera trap? Uh, I think so. Yeah. Probably. I think so. Yeah. Wow. But um, it's crazy to think these cats are actually that close to a big city, yet nobody sees them. There's there's even a researcher who I think has been studying them for I don't know how many years, and he's never seen one. <laughs> he studies the scat and the, you know, puts out the tra- camera traps, but, you know. Yeah, I, I stayed more. with a guy who had done his PhD on snow leopards, and during the time that he was working on his PhD, never actually saw one. But that was back wow. in the eighties. You know, there was we didn't have the technology we do now. We didn't have, uh, any, you know, the knowledge or there, there's so many tools we have at our disposal now, including more people that know how to look for these things. But I did think it was crazy that he would never saw one during the you know those years that he was doing his PhD, and then he was telling me that he finally glimpsed one years later when he was visiting Ladakh. But the second one he ever saw there was he was staying at a homestay in Ladakh, which is the way, still a fair number of people. That's the way they travel there is they, they stay uh, in homestays, uh, which is pretty pretty fascinating thing to do, actually. Uh, we saw we visited a couple, though uh, we didn't stay in one. Um, and he said that he was there cleaning dishes in his, uh, in his homestay, and somebody comes up to the window and starts yelling, Sean, Sean! And, you know, the Sean is the local name for the Ladakhi name for uh, Snow Leopard. He starts going, Sean, Sean. He's like, what's this about? And he comes out the house and he said there's – he could just see this little girl who's like tugging on the leg of like a goat or a sheep. I can't remember. And, he's, and he, she's like like pulling it. And then he, look, he gets around the corner a little more and he can see the whole thing. And there's a snow leopard on the other side of the, the goat. And and she's literally like trying to you know keep this this goat away from the snow leopard. And he was like, "That's the second one I ever saw." It was like, <laughs> you know, trying to steal a goat from from this farmer, and this little girl's like, you know, trying to keep it. And he's like, oh, "It just blew his mind," you know. Wow, crazy. That is that's yeah. pretty wild. Um, you know that I was actually thinking too. You know, um, those the famous. Uh, Pumas of of um, Torres del Paine in Chile. That twenty years ago, I mean, they were there. People saw them. The park rangers would see them. There were photographs. But now, like you, you can, you know, hire a guide and they'll show you one. I mean, yeah, pretty much no fail. So we've learned a lot about how to find these animals and um, their their patterns. Right. Some of it is just knowing what they do, and then you can look at the right spots and. It's it's pretty amazing. Um, sort of these cat opportunities are yeah are out there now. You know, I think the smaller cats, like any cats, are pretty small cat, right? Like yeah. that's uh, sort right. of house cat size thing. The yeah. some of these smaller cats that are really rare, really hard to see. I feel like that's the next thing that a lot of folks want to try to figure out. Well, while we were traveling around in central India, Kristen and I. There was a ranger who took us around one afternoon. In that morning, he'd photographed with his cell phone a rusty spotted cat, which is like super hard to see. And he and like and usually they're only especially in places where there's tigers around and bigger cats like leopards. These things are really hard to find. 
And, but it, you know, he'd been in there just after dawn and had this thing just hanging around the foot of a tree, you know, super lucky sightings like that are just really rare, but I feel like as time goes on, um, you know, and of course a lot of cats are in big trouble in terms of conservation and population. I do feel as though, uh, camera traps are a big help in trying to figure out how these things move and what they do. And, um, so it'll be interesting interesting to see how that progresses with some animals uh, like Andy and Cad or, you know, one of the ones I want to see, Al, is Cod Cod, uh, which is another yeah. good Chilean uh, cat. Cool yeah. name. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah it's, it's funny because the Chilean name for it is Guinea. So Cod Cod might actually be a Mapuche name. I'd have to look it up, but... Hmm. How, how that name came about. They're tiny though. Tiny, tiny. Yeah. Um, one of the smallest cats I think around in, in the new world. Hey, yeah. I got a bird question. Late on me. So high elevation things that I've sort of seen in the book and it just, I don't know why, like my attention, it was like, whoa, I want to see that thing one day. And it's, well, I've never seen a Lamborghini. That's a different situation. But it's the Grandala. Did you yes. see those? Well, no. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, but, I am with you. It is something I must see someday. Um, well, part part of it's the name, right? Yeah. Grandala. You yeah. know, and you're like, what is that thing? You like know, when I saw the name, purple like, blue thrush for folks that haven't. Seen, it's like it's like electric purple blue, and it's it's uh, like old world uh, thrush, yeah, right? You, is it, you took a, a mountain bluebird, you put it in Photoshop, and you like increase the saturation exactly. to the point where it looks unreal. You yeah. know, that's sort of like where you're like, there's no bird that's that blue, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and you know, and they're, they're so, in flocks sometimes. So you could, you like, really? you, you might, see, like, if you get a storm drive stuff down slope, you might see a dozen or even like a couple hundred in an area at once, which would just be mind blowing. Um, so, I mean, like in Bhutan, the the high high mountains are are sacred, right? So you can't go up there, and we we really don't go to the high high sort of uh, barren tops of the mountain, you know, when we do Bhutan trips. But it's on the checklist, you know. And I was thinking, Mo, well, maybe you saw it because you're going to be up in the sort of higher elevations, but still up there, they're not. You got to go even h- higher up. Is that the case, or or were you not in the right spot? Or I think we were more not in the right area. Uh, my my impression, most folks I know that see those see them on the China side, um, right? And I think there are some that make it into northern India there, but it doesn't. I don't think of it as a great place for that bird, right? Maybe um, you're too far to the west. I think I guess, so in the range. And it's so dry. This part of the, of yeah. the Himalayas is so so dry. You you know if you go down slope, um, you know towards uh, towards the south uh, west, you really start to get into um, some high bands of diversity of species. Yeah. But up where we were, it's just really dry. We did see some birds. Um, you know, we had it's a really good place for accenters. Um, oh, yeah. So and you know. We we had uh, robin accenter was a common bird. Brown accenter we saw. We had I, I'm trying to remember if it, I think it is rufous breasted accenter is the name, and we had black throated. And the latter two actually were both uh, spotted by Dave Stasekel, who's you know super sharp birder, uh, 
from field guides and knows Asia birds real well. And by the way, I, he had one piece of trivia, uh, not related to anything we're really talking about, that I wanted to relay to you both, which <laughs> is that do you know – it's a question. Do you know why all cans of beans in Ireland have exactly 239 beans in them? Is this a real thing? Well, I'll let you judge. <laughs> 239 beans. Well, the, the answer is because one more would be too farty. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, couldn't resist. <laughs> so he, Welcome yeah. back, George. Oh, yeah, he's a... Uh, thanks, Dave. <laughs> oh, God. I was dying when he told me that joke. <laughs> Um, you know, uh, I was just thinking like, while we were talking to, but I'm like, now I got the beans in my head (laughs) from this uh, Brandala, like a cool thing to do would be to see all the birds that are, have just one word names, Mm -hmm. like, you know, I wonder how many there are, but we had Twite up there, Alvaro. We had Twite up in the mountains there. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. So that's that's another one. You know, mm-hmm. these are like the Pele of birds. The, mm-hmm. the, the Beyonce, share, the share, if you will, the share of the Madonna. Birds. Like, yeah, yeah, Madonna. You just you just one, one you know, killdeer is actually one of them. Mm-hmm. Osprey, Sora, um, yeah. Sora. Yeah, um, I like it. I, I those those names all seem to have like a history, you know, to them. Something that's going on, and it's so much more interesting than you know black-throated accenter in a sense i'd like to see a black-throated accenter but it's so dis- that being clinically descriptive to me is not way as, more boring yeah like yeah, pyroloxia i have no idea what pyroloxia or phenopepla even mean but those are awesome yeah. memorable names because they're so distinct yeah i can mm-hmm. tell you what pyroloxia means the pyr is a bullfinch Perura. Oh, right, right. loxia is is uh crossbill so mm-hmm. it's the bullfinch crossbill. Crossbill, nice. Uh, something about the bill, the crazy bill. Some strong etymology there, Al. That's good. I uh, like yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, that's 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 why they hire me on this podcast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> now, Big bucks. Final pepla probably means like you know, I don't know, red eyes of fire. <laughs> I don't know that. That I don't know actually. Yeah, but uh, that up. yeah, somebody mm-hmm. should give us a list of all the one. One uh, word, bird names. There's probably a way to do that easily. I yeah, there's not that many. The like, Madanga. That's a good one. A lot of folks don't know. I don't know that one. Yeah, it's like um, it's, I think it's is it on Buru. It's like one of those Indonesian islands, and it's an arboreal bird that is actually in the it's currently is that the re- pipit. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The, all right now it. That's how it's okay. It's like a weird pipit thing. It does have another name as well, but most people I've I've always heard it called the Madanga, which to me yeah. sounds like another great band name or like an odd fruit or something. Yeah, and there's uh oh, what's that? The little um Costa Rican funny little thing that's kind of like a warblery thing with a short tail. Man, I'm just blanking out. Hmm. Uh, you guys know what I'm talking about? No. I'll I'll get back to it. I'll I'll, mm. I'll sort it out. I'll remember. Mm. <laughs> For a minute, I thought you were talking about the Akatero uh, olive warbler or something. Uh, that was my first thought. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you're talking about the Zeladonia? That's right. Zeladonia. Zeladonia. Yeah. The Zeladonia. Which might be the only bird that also had another name, right? Yeah. It's a single word, Renthrush. Yeah. (laughs) That's true. Yeah. Zeladonia. Yeah. Well, what I was thinking about when you said you spent an hour and a half looking at that snow leopard. Do you ever look at a bird when you're out traveling and maybe a bird you'll never see in your life and maybe you see it for uh, see again in your life and you look at it for like 10 seconds and you're like, wow, I had a great look at that bird. And then think about what a short period of time you actually got to spend with that bird is or how often oh, yeah. have you spent an hour and a half looking at a single bird? Yeah, well, not goals. often. I, <laughs> I will do that with goals. Yeah. <laughs> It's true, though. And I mean, I, th- I feel like a lot of the time, and maybe too, part of it is that we like with birds, we have, you know, there's, it's like, okay, got this bird. There's another bird over there. We got to go. But actually just studying the behavior of a single bird f- for a length of time, it'd be really rare to do that, I think. Um, yeah. Not sure how many times I've done that. But even if you find, like, you find a roosting owl or something like that, so it's just sitting there, you, we as birders don't tend to watch it for a long time. You know, often they're not doing much. Right. Um, but it's mm-hmm. it's interesting. We sort of look at it, we identify it, we but we don't start going, oh, okay, you know, let's count the bars on the <laughs> underparts or like is it streaked? Is it is it this or is it that? We just sort of go, Oh, it's a, you know, eastern screech owl, there it is, poking its head mm-hmm. out. And we sort of watch it what at the most five minutes. You know, that's probably a yeah. long time for any single bird. That's a good question. Why don't we, yeah, why I mean, does you, a cat get an hour and yeah. not, you know, an owl? Or even like a semi-sandpiper that's within a flock of other shorebirds, you know, like it, you could study its movements uh, compared to other species. And, you know, I feel like we mm-hmm. kind of pick that up a little bit, but we don't like, yeah, it's true. We don't spend inordinate amount of time really studying one particular subject like that. Yeah. Well, I'll admit, you know, when I started like doing more trips for birds and doing some things like maybe a bird that I've looked at in a field guide since I was five and then you see it and then it's not anticlimactic, but it's just like. Sometimes it is. There it is. Yeah. (laughs) Well, sometimes it is. (laughs) Yeah. And then like, and then you take it off and you're. You're on to the next. You the bird off. You tick the bird off your list. And then, yeah, you're on to the (laughs) next one. (laughs) I was kind of thinking about that. I've been to Central America, I don't know, half a dozen times or something. So I'm seeing a few birds and I'm like, oh, yeah, I've seen that before. And I'm like, I've seen that for maybe 10 seconds before. It's just a weird, birding's weird. Yeah, I I get a a, a different also thought that you're mentioning there, like about going to Central America and I, I've been to you know, a lot of places in Latin America where you see a toucanet, you know, and there's like a, um, you know, emerald toucanet or mm-hmm. one of the various toucanets. And sometimes it's different species and you might even in a tour have two or three species. But to me, it's like just a, it's a toucanet. It's like, it's one thing, you know what I mean? Like in my head, it's like, they're all kind of the same. And it's, it's odd that I don't, there's some birds that sort of, um, fit that mold some of the woodpeckers too like that there's a red-bellied woodpecker type you know in many places and they really don't attract your attention in a way that 
you know, you, you, you think they would because they are a separate critter, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's sort of uh, interesting how the birder brain works, yet, you know, we see, um, yeah, a, a little, a different plover and we're all over it, you know, because it's like, oh my God, you know, it's like, it's different from the other one, yet um, toucanets, they, they just don't, it's not that I don't like them. I just, they sort of like all are like, I got to say, what's the toucanet here again? You know, like, which one is it? You know? <laughs> which greenlet is this? Yeah. yeah so which greenlet is this? You know? Mm-hmm. Yet on the other hand, some of the Elenias, which all look the same, I kind of really have them in my head as like super different things. Like I'm, I'm into them. <laughs> kind of not that into toucanets. What a freak. <laughs> You're such a freak, man. <laughs> oh, man. But I, I think I think it's a good thing to think about, right? We how we react to different birds. Like yep. they, some of them like attract your something mm-hmm. about them and even and it's not just color. Yeah. Nothing more amazing than a toucanet. But like to me it's sort of like, oh, you know. Yeah. The toucans I like and mountain toucans are awesome. Yeah, toucanets, I don't know. Yeah, the one you know the one I feel guilty about that I, I always think are a little bit of a dud are New World parrots, like oh you know like Amazonas and I'm kind of like like all right yeah fine whatever those are great like you know but good Australia and you know they got some real parrots over there that's mm-hmm. like you know the galahs and the cockatoos and you know the, the all all the the palm cockatoos all all the crazy crazy ones black cockatoos I mean those are those are nuts. But one thing I wanted to ask you, Molly Brown, is you have recently been to a country that very few people I know have birded. Uh, and that is El Salvador. What was that like? Yeah. Well, I met up with uh, a few friends that I met who are from El Salvador uh, that are in the birding co-op. So one of those cases that I feel like happens a lot in birding and happens a lot in pandemic times where like, I feel like I know them really well, even though, you know, I've never seen them face to face. We've been on a lot of zoom chats and that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, I, I showed up there and just went for a little crash course, um, five days. So three full days, I, I came in pretty early in the morning and then left early in the morning. And yeah, I got there and met some people and they said, so, so what do you think about El Salvador? Like, what, what did you think it was like before you came here. And I said, honestly, I, I didn't have a lot of notions of it before. You just don't hear a lot. Uh, I did some a little bit of research on my own and kind of just sat back and <laughs> thought I was along for the ride. So that was fun, too. Um, El Salvador was absolutely fantastic. It was so much fun and so lovely and vibrant and wonderful people that I was around the entire time. Uh, my friend Benjamin put together a really awesome little itinerary that was just experiencing a lot. Um, but yeah, so it's tiny, you know, the size of, I think Massachusetts roughly. Mm -hmm. And it goes from sea level to, I think it was in the seven thousands or so the highest mountain range that kind of is up at the top there or sort of in the middle of the country. Um, we went from we we just zipped back and forth all over the place. Really incredible infrastructure. Um, so easy to get around. The roads were fantastic. I, I woke up one morning. I'm talking like I was there for weeks. I <laughs> really wasn't, but we fit a lot in. 
Um, the first night I went along or first day I went along the coast, um, just kind of got an introduction, had some really good seafood and stayed in El Impossible National Park. Um, just in a little cabanas there, woman owned, met a lot of women guides and women business owners and that kind of thing too. It was really fun. Um, but it was just, it was very quiet at the national park and it had a really good trail system and we just stayed right outside the gate. I mean, literally it was like the only building, the road kind of dead ended there. Hmm. So we, uh, woke up and just walked outside and we're into the park and spent a morning up there, went down to the coast for lunch, which was I don't know, an hour, 15 minutes or something and had more seafood uh, and kind of worked our way through the lowlands and wound our way uh, back up to another national park. Um, Los Volcanoes. Should have remembered that. Had <laughs> several volcano views. The photos you posted of those volcanoes were the, the scenery looked intense. Let me tell you, that was from my hotel room. Oh, my God. It was amazing. Cool. It was so beautiful. Um, it, it was it was wonderful. And I, I always love being in the mountains. And it was great. Did some birding there. Worked our way basically down the mountain all morning. Um, and went back to Suchitoto, which is closer to the Guatemala border. Um, that I think is fair to compare to like a small scale Antigua Guatemala kind of vibe, um, which I think is actually a popular stopover place for folks driving through Central America to get to Antigua. It's only, uh, I think like three or four hours away, but just a really cool like Spanish colonial style town. It had a huge lake. We went out and took a really nice boat ride and hung out there. And I met birders in the communities everywhere we went. And it was just the the level of community involvement and interaction. JJ Juan was another guy who was with us the whole time who I met there and he lived in Suchitoto. He he taught birding classes and nature classes in his community there and photography classes and cooking classes and I met a lot of people who were just hanging out. We did a lot of just hanging out, like stopping by someone's house and having some watermelon and saying hi and that kind of thing. And it, it was like that everywhere we went. There was such a cool network of guides that just there was so much community involvement in all of it. And I felt like everybody kind of had some little facet in birding or nature or habitat management. They were really focusing on connecting wildlife corridors from the mountains to coast and had some stretches like that. Lots of shade grown coffee plantations, visited some uh, indigo farms or a couple indigo farms that just uh, hmm. also focused on habitat management and bird habitat in particular. And I think a, an endangered lizard and I'm blanking on the name of it too, that was on that place too. So anyway, that was, that was the whole trip, just riding around, eating a lot of good food, just having really enjoyable birding, lots of opportunities to be in the water and with really cool people who were all friends and treated me like a friend and it was really fun. That's awesome. Cool. Two two questions, Molly. One, um, did you get those earrings there that you're wearing? And what <laughs> and what are they? What what are they of? And two, and two, what uh, what was the seafood? What kind of seafood did you have? Mm, okay, earrings. No, I got these in Panama last year. Um, they they look like feathers. There, it was just a shop that took bike tires and made them into different things. Oh wow! And yeah, these are just like. I mean, that's I awesome. The raven feather or uh -huh. something. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. And seafood. There were lots of just big 
uh, I had like a lot of like a ceviche and that kind of thing. So mm. A lot of avocado actually reminded me of those avocado salads we had in Uganda. Oh, yes. So I was kind of chasing that mm. down. Um, and they did a lot of big like boils that had like lobster and crab and and that kind of thing too. And just like a big, it looked like big Cajun bowls or something. Mm, and that like kind a paella of thing. kind um, of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So lots of seafood options. I was stuffed the entire time I was there. <laughs> um, yeah. We also had pupusas. And I'd heard a lot about pupusas in El Salvador before. What is that? I've never, I, heard, I never heard of it. It's, uh, really? it's just like, yeah. like street food. Yeah, that's like a big thing here in the Bay Area. Huh. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. We have so many people from El Salvador around, you know, so. Yeah, hmm. that makes sense. Well, I had one in Costa Rica, too, and honestly, I was disappointed in that one. Um, but just <laughs> like a like a bean or rice or maybe pork or something filled uh, sealed tortilla and sort of burrito uh, burrito esque. Like, sort of, it's like more like calzone, like a kind of thing, like okay. kind of you know closed in and baked in, gotcha. and then just seared, and you'd put some uh, some salsa on it, or uh, or like like a coleslaw on top, like a nice vinegary coleslaw, mm. and we snacked on those too. They were quite good. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I really enjoyed the food there. Hey, you you know, um, I've got a. A first, a first that I didn't want to like interrupt, you know, but I think I saw the binoculars go up. You see, see, (laughs) you see my binoculars and I'm like trying to like move my glasses out of the way, you know, and my headphones or so a prairie (laughs) falcon just went over. Oh, man. And that is pretty rare on the coast here. It's like I actually had to like, you know, write a little rare bird thing for the locals like prairie falcon just went over my house, you know. Wow. I think third time I've ever seen it. Uh, in this county, oh after God. living here decades, how so how like what's what's rarity. that uh, what's that for the yard? Do you know what species that is for the yard? Weirdly enough, I actually the second one I ever saw in the county was in the yard. So oh wow, I've so had it in the yard before. <laughs> wow, that's a hot so, bird. Yeah, I know. I was like, I was looking at this little raptor. And I was like, fly, fly is like weirdly like a nighthawk. What is that thing? And I look and I was like, oh my God, this is pale brown falcon what pale brown falcon and then i was just like <laughs> you know, there's that dark underwings and the whole thing it was kind of a slim male looked like that was cool that is oh, awesome yeah. i should do this more <laughs> yeah yeah we should keep a a lifeless podcast like checklist oh i like that <laughs> what we get while we're recording yes yeah, that's a yeah, great bird a lifeless yeah, yeah, list like if you will. Lifeless, lifeless list. Yes, the lifeless list. Mm-hmm. That'd be yeah, really I got, cool. I got a few here right now. I got violet green swallows, <laughs> golden crown sparrow. Yeah, I'm inside the den here where I am seeing curtains. So mm. not much. But, uh, well, when I stare off to my right, I'm looking out the window. And Alvaro, when you lean forward, I can like see sunlight and like yard and your yeah. glasses reflection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so true. <laughs> maybe uh, we can yeah. all oh, see there's what's a white in sparrow yard. Just, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, it's sort of a, it's yeah. I, I kind of position myself like when I work to be looking out, just because these things happen, you know. Like I've had a lot mm-hmm. of good birds just pop in while I'm working, and I'm like, is that a whatever? You know, it's like, yeah. Oh my god, yeah. So yeah, yeah. yeah. I was thinking about that when I said like how long we're looking at birds. I mean, the birds I look at the most are definitely the ones that are right here. And, you know, like the, the one mockingbird that sits here on the window feeder, I have spent a lot of time looking at it. Have you named it yet? <laughs> I have not named it. Yeah. I, I'm not I, really one to name birds. I knew a, I knew a mockingbird named a moose once. 
And, um, yeah, a friend of mine raised it and then like it, it fell out of a nest and he like raised it and tried to release it, but then it was like tame, but I didn't know this. And I lived like three doors down and it, it, it like landed on my head and I was like, my God, I'm like St. Peter. I just, the birds just come to me. And I was like, I was like, dude, I went over. I was like, you're not gonna believe it. I just had like a mockingbird, like landing on my head, walking around. He goes, he goes, oh yeah, that's moose. Yeah. <laughs> you met moose. Yeah. Fantastic. Oh man. It's, it was this at the incognitos. <laughs> the incognitos were just down the street, same neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah. I've told Albert about my neighbors. Yeah. They're called the incognitos. That's their names. That's their names. My parents used to be like, we're going over to the incognitos for dinner tonight. And I was like, look, you know, you don't have to tell us their names if you don't want to. And they were like, no, they're like, that's really their names. They're named the incognitos. (laughs) (laughs) Italian couple. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I don't know. That would be great if they're witness protection and they gave them the name the incognitos, you know, like. No like points the, for creativity, but. Uh, right. Yeah, I mean, but yeah. it'd be one of those, like the perfect foil, yeah. like nobody would, you know, right. they're obviously little not on the nose. Because, you know, yeah. incognitos. <laughs> nice. Well, guys, we um, are coming up on the time. Um Molly, anything right. you want folks to know about that you got coming up? Ooh. Actually, I don't think so. I I am so excited. I love trying to spend most of April and May at home. So now I'm just in like, I just want to walk my patch every morning, <laughs> go camping on the weekends and and do stuff around here. So no, always check out the birding co-op. Yes. We, we've always got stuff going on there. Um Otherwise, just, you know, get out, go birding, enjoy some sunshine and nature and whatever's around you. That's all I got. Nice. Excellent. Alvaro Jaramillo, how about you, man? Um, well, you know, if somebody was like totally like wanting to do something last minute, we could accommodate a couple more on the Hawaii tour, which is in about 10 days or so. So I'm not sure if this, so by the time this, it'll be like in a few days, but we just let me know with uh, Mandy Talpas leading that trip and that Molly co-led that trip last year. I mean, it's a uh, fun, interesting and, but you know, it's, I think we, we've talked about it in the past. It's one of those places where you really are thinking I better go there sooner rather than later uh, as some of these birds are getting rarer by the year. Um, but it's just great, you know, a place, beautiful, lots of seabirds and other things to look at. And the introduced birds are kind of fun. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's awesome. I wanted to relay to you both before we sign off here that Will Smith has been banned from the Academy Awards for 10 years. So that's that's breaking news. Uh, if you watched the Oscars recently, you would have seen Philadelphia Zone – West Philadelphia, born and raised, Will Smith uh, gave Chris Rock quite a pop in the face. Um, But uh, anyway, that bit of newsiness (laughs) aside, um, yeah, thanks everybody for listening today. Well, Um, I I was, I had decided I'm never going to go to the Academy Awards after I saw that. (laughs) You know, I'm never, I said, I'm not going to support this group. Mm -hmm. I'm, yeah. 
that's it. Yeah. I'm not going. Was, I'm not going to give him my money. That was the last whatever. straw for you, huh? Yeah. Was, yeah. 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 So, so is I this mean, life list officially boycotting the Academy Awards? That's I big think news. so. I mean, unless they want us, I, if they want to give us an award, then we can kind of. Yeah, we could maybe we can set that. up on stage and, like, you know, we could reconsider. A podcast. Yeah. yeah. I, I think we should start Lifeless by saying, you know, the award winning Lifeless podcast, even though we haven't won an award, we just pretend. I mean, mm-hmm. that's, you know, that's the world today. You know, you could just do. Yeah. I don't <laughs> see do anything wrong with that. Yeah. Right. And say we have an Academy Award, actually. Best. Uh, <laughs> that, yeah. That might prevent us from going there for the next 10 years. We'll see. I know. Well, yeah. yeah. Well. Yeah, well, I would encourage folks also to keep an eye on the Hillstar Nature website. Uh, we will be uh, putting together an India trip uh, coming up for tigers and seeing the Taj Mahal and some other spots. Also have a Tanzania trip for next year uh, that is uh, still got some spots trying to do the ultimate safari, the Ngorogoro Crater, the Serengeti and Tarangire National Park. Uh, see the Great Migration. And again, I mentioned I like cats. There's three three large cats there we'll be in pursuit of. Um, so uh, lion, leopard, and cheetah, among a multitude of other animals. Um, so keep an eye out for that. Um, thanks, everybody, for listening. Stay tuned uh, for another episode coming up soon. Thanks, Molly. Thanks, Al. Everybody have a great day. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.